I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello. Hello, hello. Sorry. I was What's pulling, that face for? I was pulling up my notes. I thought I had them like right ready. And then I was like, where are they? Oh my gosh. Okay. You like leaned into your computer camera as you did that too. Like I know podcasting is not a visual medium. You cannot see what Keegan just did, but she just made a very, I don't even know how to describe shocked, scared, it, it was out. like a, I, I feel like having seen myself in the front facing camera, um, it was a bit of like a surprised who from Whoville face. Yes. Um, Yes, you know. <laughs> very animated, very open mouth, very unexpected to start the show with. Sorry, so, I just ran. I just like, you know, did that whole like sprint to the kitchen to get some water thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I was I'm I'm I'm, st- I'm still out of breath. Oh, my God. Are we settled now? We're good. Uh, We're back. Yes, we are right. good. We are back. We are ready to talk about something horrible yes um, when we were trying to think of what we wanted to talk about for black history month you had mentioned wanting to talk about the tuskegee airmen mm-hmm. which i think is super important and i definitely want to talk about it you brought it up a while like, i remember you mentioning that you wanted to talk about it on an episode like a while ago and that's why we added it and i think that's why like i think i'd had it in my mind for like a year that we were gonna do that for black history month so that's why that well, was it in the definitely mix. needs to be done uh, definitely but it kind of jogged my memory about 
this situation, especially since this situation is being discussed more regularly at this moment, because there was a recent study done that nearly one third of black Americans are hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes. Now, everyone at this point, I mean, I think that there has been a lot of like question marks surrounding that because um, everyone knows that COVID can be deadly and everybody knows that it disproportionately affects black and brown communities. So why does this hesitancy exist? You know, yeah. I think a lot of people have have those questions. And um, I think that one pretty credible, I don't even want to say theory because there is actually, there are actually Evidence. studies that have, yeah. have backed this up, um, is not only the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but also just, I'm going to touch very briefly on America's long history of medical racism, which actually does yeah. deserve its own episode. It but. does. But I did, I started my notes talking a bit about racism in the medical community in the early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. And I got a lot of this information from a Hastings Center report. So it was like a very, very dated, like, PDF. I could only see a preview of it on the website. Um, and it's pretty blunt. It's a very, like, outdated Uh, you know, way of describing social Darwinism and things like that. But many doctors and medical professionals in the early 20th century believed in social Darwinism, which argued that black people could not be assimilated into, quote, complex white civilization. And they believe that this was because black men were perceived to be more prone to disease, vice, and crime, given their low social standing, a.k.a. racism. The reason that these people had a lower social standing was because they were not given the same opportunities, so on and so forth. Social Darwinists also believed that because of this, the black population was in danger of extinction. So there were a lot of um, studies being done in the medical community that was focused on how medicine and treatments and illnesses were affecting the white population. But because there was this belief that black people and white people would have different reactions to different medicines and diseases created a lot of these studies where they would study the differences between uh, white infected people and black infected people. Right. I mean, and it should be said that this wasn't just a belief that people had. This was something that was actually taught in medical textbooks. It was in, yeah, it was taught in medical schools. And it was also taught that black men's genitals were overdeveloped while their brains were underdeveloped. And this was a way of kind of you know, enforcing that idea that white women should be fear fearing, you know, black men, so on and so forth. And this is another reason why all of this kind of ties into the syphilis study, because they had this belief that they would be able to find a large population of black men because all of them are so sexually aggressive that they must have this sexually transmitted disease. So they went to, you know, different areas of the South to try to find the right area to do this experiment. Right. There was a reason for going to Macon County um, specifically. But I do also want to say that when we speak about this and we're talking about, you know, it, this is in the past, I mean, and, and you know, 18th, 19th century and the, these kind of mentalities, um, that stuff stays. Uh, mm-hmm. It sticks around. It's um, the repercussions 
are lasting in the care that black men and women receive in the medical field even today. And there was a study that was done in 2016 that revealed that 40% of white medical students believe that black people's skin is thicker than white Mm -hmm. people's. And as a result, black people feel less pain. 2016. is I, I think we talked about that on a mini episode. Like, I feel like I recall discussing that exact... That like that exact thing with you before. Absolutely crazy. And yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, we always talk about how history is really not that far away, especially when we're talking about something like medicine that's being taught in schools. Like think about, you know, the teacher in the early 20th century who taught the student who then taught their student and taught their student. You know, that's why these ideas stick in our minds, because they are perpetually being taught by teachers that hold these ideas or other doctors that hold these ideas. So that's why they continue on. It's not like it happened a long time ago and then it stopped. Right. So Those people didn't just go away. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, you think about how long textbooks exist um, and how long it takes to change history and also to change, you know, the beliefs People's that minds. people have that they've learned yeah. in school and things like that. Um, it, it takes generations sometimes. So, Um, The Tuskegee syphilis study is one of the most infamous incidents of unethical medical research in American history. It ran from 1932 to 1972. And if that sounds like a long time, it's because it it is. is. Um, And in this study, researchers told the participants who were black men that they were being treated when, in fact, they were not. And the entire point of the study was to track how untreated syphilis progressed in black men. Yes. Um, Now, they and I don't think these men were even told that they had syphilis. Now, there were some men who had tried to go into into the World War Two. They were drafted. And then when they had their physicals, they were told that they had syphilis. So I think some people were aware, but for most of the participants, from what I understand, they were told that they had something called, quote, bad blood, which at the time was kind of this like colloquial term that covered many different conditions such as syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. And it was diagnosed only for black patients. And it was the leading cause of death in the black community in the South at the time, this bad blood. I feel like there had to have been some understanding, at least for a certain number of these um, men, that they had this disease. Because when they went out, which we'll talk about a little bit more, but like when they went out to try and find participants, yeah. um, I believe initially they went out actually asking for um, people who had syphilis. Uh, and then in order to get the number of participants that they needed for this study, they then they then expanded it or opened it up um, yeah. to, quote, bad blood, because there was a certain percentage of these people um, who had never seen a doctor before and might yes. not even know the actual term. Well, um, and that was part of the intrigue to it all as well, because a lot of these people had never been to the doctor before. There were people that were offering this, like, free checkups, free mm-hmm. treatment, you know, so that hot would be meals. very hot right. meals. Like that is so enticing to somebody mm-hmm. that maybe hadn't been exposed to something like that in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what syphilis is. So yes. syphilis is a disease caused by the bacterium Treponema pallidum. I think I'm saying that right. And it is a sexually transmitted disease. So there are other diseases that are similar, caused by similar bacterium that can spread um, through kind of casual contact. But syphilis is sexually transmitted. Um, It can also be passed through placenta during pregnancy, leading to congenital syphilis in newborns. Mm -hmm. In its first stage, 
it will appear as a sore in the location where the bacteria first enters the body. So usually on the on general genitals, area. Which is and one of the reasons why I feel that even if they didn't know what syphilis was, like they knew that there was, I mean, I think people would notice, I hope I would notice if I had like a growth on mm-hmm. my vagina. Right. I mean, and it would stay for three to six weeks. Yeah. And so then you would go into like, remission isn't the word, but it's, it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for is I don't have it, it written It would go me. into kind of latency um, a latency right yeah. so it it would go into a latency however the second stage would usually occur thereafter um which would be a rash sometimes accompanied by swollen lymph nodes fever fatigue achiness etc so kind of like a flu like symptoms um but then this is when it would subside and go fully into its latent stage and after that you may or may not go into the third stage of syphilis. So you might, for the rest of your life, it could remain latent um, and you could have no more symptoms. Yeah, one of of the participants, uh, I believe his name is Richard Pollard, he had no idea that he had syphilis the Mm -hmm. entire time, lived to be very old. He didn't Mm -hmm. even find out about the study until much later. So, yeah. Because, you know, you can think, especially when our understanding of like venereal diseases were so limited, you can think, oh my gosh, I've caught something, but then it goes away and then you know a week later you have the flu and then it goes away and then if you never have any other symptoms you're probably like oh that was just a a and i don't know if i would tie that together like if i got sick i don't know if i would be like oh that's from the warts on my vagina like i don't think i would make that connection exactly but you know so the majority of people actually it would go into its latency and then it would stay that way however Mm -hmm. there would be 30 percent of people for up to 30 percent of people um who had untreated syphilis it would enter into a very serious stage 10 years or more on um and this stage would affect parts of the body including the heart and brain and can cause large sores on the body blindness mental disorders destruction of bone paralysis organ failure and death yeah, and it's it was, bad. It's really bad. It's I mean, real bad to the point where when it was um, introduced into, because actually they think it started in the Americas, and then it was actually Christopher Columbus or somebody who took it I'm back over sure. to Europe. I um, am sure. And then it ravaged Europe because they didn't have any immunity to it. Yeah, and. Um, when it began, they actually thought it was a form of leprosy. That's how bad the disease I mean, would, that, could manifest. That you know? makes sense. I remember first being curious about, because um, I knew that syphilis was a sexually transmitted disease. But do you remember, I think it's in season, I know it's in season one of Friends. I don't know why I'm saying it like I wouldn't know. Or no, it's in season <laughs> two because Rachel is with Ross. And they go to Barry's wedding. And Barry's excuse for why Rachel left him at the office at the altar was because she had gone insane from the syphilis. I'm oh. using air quotes when I'm saying that. See, I, I remember syphilis from, I watched, and I thought it was very scandalous whenever I was like 14 or 15. I watched um, Johnny Depp in The Libertine, that movie The Libertine, mm. and the guy that he was playing, it was supposed to be in like the 1600s, and it was a, a real life kind of inspired by a real life right. person. And he got syphilis and his nose fell off. <gasps> And he had to wear one of those, like, metal noses. Oh, my God. So, I mean. That's, okay. And that, you saying that takes this whole story to another level to me. Like, that, this, I can't imagine being sick with a disease, having people know that I'm sick with this disease, mm-hmm. not being treated, and having this shit 
potentially happen to me without me really having any sort of understanding or knowledge to why the fuck my nose is falling off. Right. So in the mid in the mid 1920s in the United States, syphilis was basically a public health crisis. Ten to 15 percent of the population were infected and some estimates go up to 35 percent. And studies in 1928 found that that higher number, that 35 percent, that these numbers were especially high in Macon County, Alabama, Mm -hmm. which is where you know, the Tuskegee Institute was. And again, this is kind of a a side note. Again, this deserves its own show. We've actually had people write in and request that we do an episode on HBCUs. Um, But the Tuskegee Institute is now Tuskegee University, which is Mm -hmm. a historically black college. It started out as a school for black teachers. Um, The first teacher was Booker T. Washington. It's very interesting kind of history. Yeah, and it's interesting that somewhere that is so historically, you know, at least I don't don't know much about it, but appears to be very pro-black would Mm -hmm. have such a negative uh, Mm -hmm. relation to something like this. Right. And it it Um, makes it very complicated because, of course, some of not all of and definitely not the people who were in charge of getting this study underway. But yeah, some of the doctors and nurses were black doctors and nurses. Eunice Rivers was hired specifically to kind of help lure in more participants Mm -hmm. to recruit to make them feel more comfortable she would be the one driving them back and forth and giving them their hot meals and so yeah there was a lot of manipulation going on I feel of the black people that were involved in the study as well and there really is no evidence that shows that these people had any sort of knowledge of the inner workings of this experiment and things like that Um, right I mean I would have to believe Miss Rivers is a complicated um, she subject. Is, she is complicated, yeah. But I, I'd have to believe that she would have to know that something was going on because she was the one who would be sitting with these men as they were dying. Yeah, I honestly, my red flags were going up when I was doing, because I did a whole, I went down a rabbit hole of Eunice Rivers because I was like, okay, I need to know more about this person. And yeah, I had some red flags popping up when right. I was reading I mean, about accounts, her. Accounts differ. There are some people who feel like she was like this pawn in this game and she didn't have a lot of say she, or agency. But I mean, she would work with the families to like convince them to let them keep the bodies for autopsies and mm. be like, yeah, we'll cover your funeral costs and I don't know there there's enough implicity I feel Mm -hmm. like that I wonder but then again we don't know why she would go into that or what did I say implicity oh sorry yes no sorry um but you know we don't we don't know the reasons for why she would do that we don't know if she was manipulated we you know there's so many question marks but yeah Mm -hmm. reading articles about her I definitely had a lot of like ooh moments where I was like I don't know about that Uh, yeah totally yeah so I wanted to mention really quick so because we were just talking about 1928 in 1928 there was a study in Oslo which treated which uh, studied untreated syphilis in several hundred white men and uh, so because of that they were kind of you know the US was inspired to do a similar experiment but to see the effects of syphilis on black men because there was this belief at the time or this theory I guess that doctors had that while white people would suffer more neurosyphilis so like problems with the brain black people would more be more likely to have cardiovascular damage and they wanted to see if that was true right I mean and I should say that that Oslo study is also very 
ethically questionable. The Anytime doctor, you have human experimentation, it's going to be questionable. Well, I mean, it, it, it's different than the Tuskegee study because in that study, basically the doctor was saying, hey, the treatments that we have for syphilis are not very effective, which is true. It was mm-hmm. it turned it turned out to be true. Um, but he was like, I don't think that mercury and these other things that we are using to cure syphilis are actually effective and I can't let all these people with syphilis back out into the population because they're going to continue to spread it. So we'll just keep them here and not treat them. And as long as we're not treating them, they're not going to spread it. Right. And let's study it because we have them here. You know, let's study what happens when you don't treat them. So I mean, yeah, it's fucked up when you're like, let's see what happens when you don't treat them. But then there's also this like, I don't I don't know if that had any real medical basis to it because we know that the Tuskegee experiment had no benefits to the medical community whatsoever. But it is one of those things where it's like you have to know somehow what the effects are. But I also feel like the way to go about that isn't like getting a group of them together and just watching them die. It's a mess. So in 1932, there was a doctor named Talia Farrow-Clark. He was the chief of the U.S. Public Health Service's Venereal Diseases Division. And he, as you said, wanted to do something similar to the Oslo study, but using black men. um, And at first, it was to see what would happen if syphilis was left untreated in black men for a period of six months. Six, And they said like six months and then possibly we'll extend it to a year at the most. (laughs) Remember, this went from 1932 to 1972. They're telling us right now, six months to a year, tops. 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 (laughs) So there were obviously a lot of, you know, as you have already said, a lot of racist notions behind this. Um, Some of those being that one, there was a belief that black men and women are highly sexual creatures by nature and therefore more morally loose and promiscuous. And two, that black men in particular were less likely to seek treatment. Yeah. I wonder why. Which is true. Um, Like, yeah. And... And um, so, like, what was the harm? If they're not going to seek treatment anyway, Mm -hmm. then the medical community might as well observe what happens if they don't. And Clark actually called this a, quote, ready-made situation. It's just, Clark is a piece of shit. And along with him, there was another guy that I want to call out by the name of Thomas Perrin Jr., who was equally, if not more, involved in the creation of the study as well. So this guy used to be the health commissioner of New York State and former head of the USPHS in the Venereal Disease Division. Um, He was one of the people... So there was... Sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I don't mean to. But there was a company that was going to be financing this experiment called the Rosenwald Fund, and they had pulled out. So this parent guy was asked to make an assessment of seriological surveys of syphilis and demonstration projects for five southern states. And that was when he had visited Macon County as well, where he wrote a letter stating, if one wished to study the natural history If one wished to study the natural history of syphilis and the African-American race uninfluenced by treatment, this county, Macon, would be an ideal location for such a study. You know, and it was interesting as well because those numbers that they were working off of, that Macon County had a syphilis 
um, percentage of about 35%, yeah. were not actually correct. The numbers weren't as high as they had originally thought, which actually caused some hurdles to their study. The The percentage was more like 20%. And mm. yes, that's higher than the national average of 10 to 15, but it wasn't as high as they had originally expected. So... And also, despite their belief that black men were unlikely to see a doctor or be treated, a large percentage of those who initially came forward with the disease um, said that they would only participate if they were treated. So they were faced with this issue where they were like, "Okay, we're going to have to lie to them because they didn't have the numbers that they needed. Right. Right. So they were like, if we're going to be able to go forward with this experiment, we're going to have to lie to these people and tell them that we're going to treat them. Right. So they gave them, you know, similar treatments that were given in the Oslo experiment, you know, mercury. And there's another long name for another medication that I don't have written in front of me. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Um, But I also I just really want to drive home the people that are in charge of this experiment. Like it's not just like these random like doctors that are like wanting to, you know, band together to have this experiment. This is the United States Public Uh Health Service. Mm -hmm. And later... The CDC, who we hear about constantly. So that's why this is such a big deal, because it wasn't like it's just this everyday layman's doctor who's saying we're going to lie and give, you know, quote unquote treatment that's not really going to work or we're just not going to treat them. This is actually like a United States federally like supported group. You know, it's crazy. Right. It goes all the way to the top. It goes all the way to the top. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say later on that one of the big issues with this study, of course, is one, the informed consent issue um, that there wasn't any. Uh, But two, that about when we'll talk about this later down the line, but about 15 years into the study, penicillin became the primary treatment for this and they didn't give it to them. However, even before that, before this study even began, there was a treatment for for syphilis called compound 606. And compound 606 was used to treat syphilis. Did it work? um, Not as effectively as penicillin, but it was effective in treating syphilis. So it's not as though there was nothing they could have given them anyway. And so they're just going to do this thing. Well, right. But that wasn't but that wasn't even the point of the experiment. Like the whole objective of this experiment, very similar to the Oslo experiment, Let's get a group of these people together and just watch them die. That was it. Right. Or just, yes, let's just see what happens. Yeah, exactly. There were 600 men in this study. Out of them, 399 had latent syphilis. And the control group was of 201 who were not infected. Right. And another thing that they did when they decided to continue the study on... um, For longer than the six months to For longer than the six Mm -hmm. months and... It wasn't until after that that they decided to get a control group, which is just bad science in the right, first place. That's right. They waited until after the six months, and then they were like, okay, well, if we're going to continue on with this, then we need to get a control group. And then what they would do, again, bad science, uh-huh. is if somebody in their control group <laughs> yes. contracted syphilis, they would just shift them over. Shift them over. To, move them on the over to the group. group that had syphilis. Yeah, exactly. So it just bad science. Yeah, bad science all the way around. Not that that's the point. But (laughs) I also want to point out that in addition to these like mercury ointments, these aspirin placebos, things that they would give them during their initial physical, they would also put and keep in mind, this is in the 30s. They would also put participants through painful and risky spinal tap procedures yeah. um, and they told them it was part of their quote treatment it, yeah. it's not a spinal tap is not a treatment and it's also 
painful. It's, it's very painful. It's incredibly painful. Well, you were saying that it was when it was toward the beginning. Was that maybe also kind of what they were saying as part of like the diagnosing process? Like, I just don't like that's such an invasive procedure. Yeah, they, they said it was something to help cure their bad blood, right? <sighs> so they're straight up lying to these people with something that is very painful so, and invasive. Yeah, but here, I, I don't know much about spinal tap. So then what would be the why Why were they giving spinal taps? Were they actually trying to find something or discover something yes, through that? Or were they, they just doing it to inflict pain? No, they were trying. I, I believe during a spinal tap, you're extracting fluid. I could be wrong um, from the spine. I could be totally wrong on that. So someone correct me if I am. But I, mean, I think that that's the case. And they were trying to determine if the men had neurosyphilis. Okay. So they were going to test it um, to determine whether or not they had syphilis of the but brain. Again, but again, they weren't they weren't telling their patients that they had syphilis to begin with, so therefore they couldn't tell them that's why they were doing the spinal tap, so on and so forth. Unless the patients already oh. knew that they were, were infected. Unless, unless they already knew, right. but, but even then, I don't think that they were being upfront or honest Definitely you know, about, yeah. about the situation. And so once they decided that they were going to continue this study on longer than the planned six months, again, it was the U.S. Public Health Service that made that call. Yep. Um, they decided that it was going to be necessary to conduct autopsies on the patients in order to have a thorough understanding of how syphilis progresses. So I mean, it makes sense. Like if you were to, uh, it doesn't make sense to watch the person die and then give them an autopsy, but it would make sense if somebody were to, you know, give their body to science and then do an autopsy to see how the disease has ravaged the body. Yes, it makes sense. But like I mentioned before, when they hired Eunice Rivers, one of her primary jobs was, you know, encouraging the families to let them keep the bodies for autopsies in exchange for payment for funeral arrangements. Well, and also payment. So, yeah, the families and the participants, neither one were told um, uh, that there would be an autopsy upon the participant's death. So also, in order to make sure that they had the bodies on hand, they would encourage them to come in if if they got sick for any reason, they covered their medical expenses and encouraged them to come into the hospital. And they were like, we'll pay for your medical expenses yep. because they wanted them to die in the hospital uh -huh. because it was then easier to get the bodies um, for autopsy before before burial without the families knowing what was happening. Right. So, and they these doctors also wanted to have the most control in this county. So in 1934, the researchers provided doctors in Macon County with the names of the participants and asked them not to treat those people. So not only were these people given the opportunity to have free health care to come to them if they were sick or anything like that because they were luring them in in case they died, you know, they, they would be turned away by other doctors who could potentially help them. Help them, yeah. I mean... And this was not just necessarily like in Macon County, but outside of it as well. Right. They By 1940, it was all of the Alabama Health Department. Yeah. And and the draft board, you mm -hmm. know, they would contact basically anywhere that these men would go, they would contact them and not only violate their patient's privacy by sharing that medical information, uh -huh. um, but also encourage the doctors not to give appropriate care to their patients. So, exactly. I mean, you take an oath to do what's right by your patient when uh -huh. you become a doctor. Do no harm. And they're basically being told, like, we don't want you to. But yeah. we don't want you to treat them even if you can. Yeah, it's and awful. It, it should be said that many of these men who are participating in this study, I mean, we're talking about 
1930s. We're talking about Depression era, Deep mm-hmm. South, mm-hmm. black men in the Deep South. So many of these men were poor sharecroppers. They did not have a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, and knowing that it was likely that a lot of these men could possibly drop out of this study if they weren't experiencing sy- symptoms because their syphilis was latent. Right. Um, or if they didn't see any benefit to these treatments because they were taking placebos, um, the public health service offered incentives, like we said, such as transportations, paying for medical care, hot meals to participants yeah. during a time when which sounds great to come by which sounds absolutely like if i in this day and age was being told that you know if i were to be involved in a covid vaccine study we're gonna give you a hot meal when you're here we're gonna make sure you've got rides to and from i'd be like hey you're doing the work for me i'll show up whatever you know like it sounds like a great deal especially you know depression era when like having a hot meal was hard you know exactly exactly so there was something called the Henderson Act that was passed in 1943, which required testing and treatment for venereal diseases to be publicly funded. Um, And now were these people getting their venereal disease treatment in 1943? No, they were not. And then, like we mentioned earlier, by 1947, it became common knowledge in the medical community that penicillin was successful in treating syphilis, prompting none other than the U.S. Public Health Service to open several rapid testing centers specifically for treating people with syphilis with penicillin. So the same people, the same mm-hmm. organization that is denying 600 men any sort any sort of treatment is opening rapid testing centers and rapid treatment centers for people to be treated for their syphilis. Right. And so to just put this on a timeline for you all, um, to put this on like a timeline for you to visualize, 1947, when penicillin became the standard treatment for syphilis, it was 15 years after the study had begun and 25 years before it would end. So they knew that there was a treatment that was effective, you know, in managing, if nothing else. Yes. And well, and that's the thing is that there were some people that came out to say that, you know, the doctors would say, well, we can't give them the treatment now. It's too late. You know, they, there were lots of excuses that were made by the doctors in this quote unquote experiment, you know, that made them feel better about not giving them medication. You know, they told themselves that even if they did give them the medication, that these people would not be saved, which isn't true. At any stage of syphilis, any sort of treatment and intervention is helpful. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, and as we said already, some participants experienced no symptoms after the disease um, went into its latent stage. However, a number of men died went blind or insane or developed other severe health problems due to this untreated syphilis throughout this time and i can't help but think like what kind of mental gymnastics are you doing as a healthcare provider i mean unless i i can't believe that every person who participated in this study just had no soul like i don't understand like i don't know how you could sit with I mean, these people and these families day in and day out. I know, not. but if you've got people at the top, I feel like if there if there are, I guess, explanations that can make sense, like if somebody can somehow come up with a manipulation and something to tell a group of people that makes sense to them, such as 
the medication won't work or whatever, if you're listening to someone that maybe is above you or might know more than you, you know, maybe there was just some going along with it, you know, that's what they said. So that's what we have to do. You know, I would be very interested to know more about what these workers actually were well aware of. I feel like a lot of people would do things for the sake of science and for the sake of learning Very more true, yeah. and having that information because I think you can do mental gymnastics where you say, well, this is bad right now and it's bad for these specific people, but it's good for humanity and it's, it's good, good for, for the, the greater good. Of, right, yeah, and, and it's it's about, you know, the ends justify the means and all of that. But in this specific case, there was, I don't think that's true. There was no so, means, yeah, there was no, I, nothing scientifically was really gained out of either the Oslo study or this study from what I understand from the articles that I, mean, I read. It, it's good to know, like, for instance, what came out of the Oslo study is that, like, it's good to know that 70% of cases are going to go into a latent stage, yeah. you know, and, and that there won't be necessarily a third more destructive stage and that it's it's such a smaller percentage. Like, that is good to know. It's, it's useful information. Um is it does it justify this this next step and yeah. also i mean i didn't read a lot of the articles or i didn't make a lot of notes in from the articles that really got into the communications between the doctors but it cannot be stressed enough that this was racist like there's yeah. a reason why they chose um black men and there's a reason why they chose poor black men yeah. you know um and and poor families of and course, that's why an they were able and that's why they were able to keep this hidden for 40 years like this was not common knowledge to people people were in the medical community people who worked for the u.s public health services didn't even know that this was going on like this was a very secret experiment that was kept under wraps and it was able to thrive for 40 years right enough yeah. people kept their mouths shut which is crazy um, in 1947, the Nuremberg Code was written, and in 1964, the World Health Organization published the Declaration of Helsinki, and both of those aimed to protect humans from experimentation. By the time 1964 had rolled around, the CDC had taken over the study from the USPHS, and they still decided to continue the study. Right. So it was in the mid-1960s that there was a PHS venereal disease investigator in San Francisco named Peter Buxton. Yeah. And he found out about the Tuskegee study and he was like, yo, I don't think this is cool. He yeah. went to his supervisors and he was like, this is unethical. Um, I don't think we can do this. But yeah. in response, at that time, officials formed a committee to review the study. They were like, all right, we'll take a look at it. Yeah, he, he, wrote a, he wrote a letter to the national director of the Division mm -hmm. of Venereal Diseases expressing his concerns of ethics and morality, laid it all on the line. But ultimately, they opted to continue the study. Um, they wanted they were they were like, listen, just let us do it till they die. Like, yeah. that's basically what they said. They, they were said like, we, the experiment is not yet complete. Yeah, we need to track these participants until they die and autopsies are performed yep. so that we can collect the data. And at that point, you know, I have to say that probably there was a little bit of a sunk cost fallacy at that point where they were like, listen, when we decided to continue this study in 1932, after the six months, um, we did so because we were going to continue it until they passed away. And at right. this point, it had been so many years that they were probably like, 
let's just finish it rather we, than stop now because then yeah. we have to grapple with the fact that we let it go on for no reason. And is you there know? and then is there no conclusion? How would we finish the study? Yeah, I'm sure in their minds there were lots of other again rationalizations for why it had to go on. So the CDC, now that they were in charge, they got support from the National Medical Association, which represented black physicians and the American Medical Association. So the National Medical Association is the oldest national organization representing black American physicians and their patients. So it's super shady of the CDC to get them on their side. Yeah. And Peter Buxton, finally, you know, it took a while for him to go through the appropriate channels um, to try and get this resolved. He had tried again two years later, um, and he had actually tried to time it a bit better. He sent this seven months after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., pointing out the political volatility of the study. And again, he was Smart. I mean, rejected. It, it, he at first tried to appeal to their humanity, and yeah. that didn't work. And then he tried to p- appeal to them politically, where he was like, look, guys, if this comes out, like it's going to look really bad at exactly. this point. Like, we're at a different place as a nation, and you can't do this. But none of so, it worked. Yeah, so, so what do you do when the law isn't on your side where do you, you go blow the whistle you, you go blow to the, the media you go mm-hmm. to the media and that's exactly what he did he met with gene heller of the associated press and leaked all of the information to her which she then published in the washington star on july 25th 1972 and then the next day it was on the front page of the new york times which is crazy and that kind of started course, getting the ball moving <laughs> I mean, this is the 70s at this point. People are not having it. They were outraged and horrified. And you can imagine um, that the people who were still around, who had been involved in this study, they were horrified. Yeah. Now, when the study ended, there were only 74 subjects still living. I and know. we don't we don't know the exact number of those who died as a consequence of their untreated syphilis. Yeah, it doesn't sound least, like it was that well organized keeping track of everybody. No, which is too many like, people. Okay. <laughs> um, it was at least 28, though, that we do know and yeah. possibly up to 100. And then the number of people who contracted syphilis as a result of of the study is unknown because again you have some of these people who don't know they have syphilis yeah um or who think that they're being cured and then they're going out and having relationships with people and spreading it what we do know is that at least 40 spouses Mm -hmm. had been diagnosed with syphilis and the um and it had been passed down to 19 children at birth at least well and that's and to me that is such an important part of this story, the fact that it was passed down to children because the 1970s were not that long ago. These people that were directly affected by this study are still around today. So with the health crisis we're going through right now, you know, this is this is present in their oh, minds. Course. This isn't, oh, again, course. history is not that long ago. This is mm-hmm. still very, very new to them. Senator Edward Kennedy called congressional hearings where Buxton and officials from the U.S. Departments of Health, Education, and Welfare testified. As a result of public outcry, the CDC and PHS appointed an advisory panel to review the study. And that panel found that the men agreed to certain terms of the experiment, such as consent to examination and treatment. However, they were not informed of the study's true purpose. So that was kind of the 
the defense, the catch. Uh, yes, they may have said, I'll come in for a checkup and a treatment and whatever, but they were not aware of the study's true purpose. Right. Therefore, they were not aware of, of what they were going through. Consent. Yes. They did not, they, may, they consented to be a part of the study. They did not consent to everything that the study entailed. Yeah. And they were lied to about what the study actually was. So then your consent is no longer valid. Your uh-huh. consent is, is null and void. It doesn't matter if you said yes to this one aspect, if they're sneaking other things in there. Like that's not how it works. Exactly, exactly. It was that panel that then determined the study medically unjustified and ordered its termination. So the following year, the study's surviving participants, along with the heirs of the participants who had already passed away, received a $10 million out-of-court settlement. Um, Additionally, there were new guidelines issued to protect human subjects in U.S. government-funded research projects moving forward. Yeah, one of those uh, was in 1974, Congress passed the National Research Act, signed into law by by President Nixon. Uh, The National Research Act created the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research to develop the guidelines for human subject research and oversee and regulate the use of human experimentation and medicine. Within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Office for Human Research Protections was also established. Yes, um, the government also established the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program to pay for medical care of the participants whose wives and children were later added on to that program as well. Um, But I think it's important when we're talking about this to talk about the lasting effects. You know, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this right now um, in relation to what's going on, because (laughs) I feel like we have a very specific mental image of what an anti-vaxxer looks like yes right? and it's usually oh, like yeah. white middle-aged moms on facebook right but there are a lot of people within the black community i heard a lot growing up um you know not to trust this kind of thing and yeah. not that and, and you hear it now and it's not that black people don't want to get the vaccine they just don't want to be the first to get the vaccine yeah. because if they want to wait they want to wait and see yeah i mean and t- honestly i mean i think that's how a lot of people feel it's very scary, but because of this history, it's it's so much it's so understandable. You know, right. even there there is um a woman in um in Tuskegee today who was a former mayor. Her name is Lu I don't I think it's Lucenia. Lucenia Dunn, who is a black woman, and she is wary of receiving the COVID-19 vaccination, saying she's suspicious of the government promoting a vaccine developed in record time when it didn't seem to conduct adequate testing or provide consistent health care in rural areas. So kind of saying, like, if you're not always there for us, like, why are you there now? You know, this went so fast. You know, she has multiple reasons. And she does say that doesn't mean I'm never going to do it, but I know enough to withhold getting it until we see all that is involved. Right. I do want to say that, you know, I hear that a lot on Facebook that this vaccine hasn't been tested and it's been rushed and and stuff. And I do want to say it has been tested. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't <laughs> it, 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 it wouldn't pass those those stages. It was just that I think everything was so. Uh, yes, this process it, was was they, moving they so fast because they had they to. But I only want to give that little tiny little asterisk because I don't want to. Um, fuel anyone's anyone's fear yes i'm going to take the vaccine as soon as it is available to me oh same Um, same yeah but but 
I do want to just point that out because there are lasting consequences of things like this within the community. In 2016, a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper reported that when the study became publicly known in 1972, it led to increases in both mistrust of the medical community and vaccines Mm -hmm. and mortality within the black community. So um, I also... Oh, sorry. I I found this fascinating. There was a woman by the name of Marcella Aslin at Stanford Medical School that showed evidence that the Tuskegee study was responsible for over a third of the life expectancy gap between older black men and white men in 1980. Right. That's what I was about to say. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to step on your toes there. You're fine. You're fine. The life expectancy for black men around the age of 45 when the study was exposed dropped by about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, And it is likely because black people are less likely to seek treatment as a result of this experiment as well as other forms of medical racism. Definitely. Um, so it it really did have lasting effects on the community. I mean, think about it, like a year and a half mm-hmm. because now you cannot trust the people and the systems that have been put in place to help you. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think about even the, I can't remember what, I think it was the National medical association that would that's a historically you know there to support black doctors and their patients you know even when you're getting some of these organizations involved that were in place to protect those communities like even they seem to have been kind of hoodwinked and brought into it like that's even more of a lack of trust the people that you were supposed to put right. your faith in even mm-hmm. so bought into the idea of- we make a lot of jokes. I mean, I, I know that I grew up with a, a lot of those jokes about black people not wanting to go to the doctor because it's kind of funny. I mean, I never about, like the way that I never heard it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, because it, it's kind of funny. We all had that like one uncle who was just like, can't trust the doctors, can't go to the doctor, you know, <laughs> but it really does have basis in reality. It, yeah. Um, in, in things like this happening, and, and not just this, but other forms of medical racism that exist in the community, it makes it very hard to feel like you're going to be taken care of or like, what are they going to do to me? You know? Yeah. I mean, there and, are so um, many, there are so many studies that I've, you know, read different articles of in the past talking about, you know, the differences between men and women when they go to the doctor, whether or not, you know, uh, uh-huh. a, a woman is taken less seriously than a man, mm-hmm. you know, it, certain diseases are diagnosed more in men than in women. And the same goes for race, you know, white women, white men are, you know, more likely to be diagnosed with heart disease than those of people of color. So, yeah, it's and I I wish like does that would that also tie into just a lack of belief in someone when they try to say their symptoms like, you know, it's just the fact that they would still have this prejudice in the medical community to this day is is scary. And I got to say, I don't blame I don't blame people for being wary. I don't think yeah. it's right. I wish that these people didn't have to be concerned about the COVID-19 vaccine, didn't have to be worried about going to the doctor because it could save their lives. Hopefully there are enough good doctors out there that, you know, chances are you go in and get proper care. But I under- I completely see why there would be that distrust to this day, why you would have an uncle today that would say, no, don't go to the doctor. Right. And that would say that that makes mm-hmm. complete sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting just to put those things into context, you know. And again, this is not to say, like, 
I I am going to get the vaccine as soon as it's yes. available to me. I believe in in the safety of this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not trying to cast a doubt on that at all. But I just wanted. I think that this is history that should be known so that people have a certain amount of context, right? Um, um, for why you know people kind of feel this way. I think it's really important, and I do want to say that there is another woman who is a former city councilwoman in Tuskegee named Georgette Moon, who is hoping to change the perception by getting the vaccine herself and encouraging friends to do the same. Mm-hmm. Moon says the study, the Tuskegee study, is a huge factor. I've had very qualified, well-educated people tell me they are not going to take it right now. So in Macon County, they currently have 160 vaccines available to dole out per day, but it seems to be right now they've maxed out at about 140 a day. However, there seems to be an uptick. It seems like they're starting to use more and more of their vaccines every day, which is really good, hopefully as time goes on. Um and we're witnessing people not having these, you know, horrible reactions to the vaccine, more and more people will go in. But I think definitely um, in that area, having people like Georgette Moon who are willing to, you know, publicly go out and get the vaccine and talk about it to Mm -hmm. protect her community in a way and to be the person to come out and say, look, this is okay. Yeah. You know, everything like that. We need we need both sides, somebody who's going to tell us to be cautious and somebody who is going to spearhead you know showing that you know right. you all can follow you know right yeah so in may of 1997 president bill clinton did a public apology stating quote the united states government did something that was wrong deeply profoundly morally wrong it is not only in remembering that shameful past that we can make amends and repair our nation but it is in remembering that past that we can build a better present and a better future mm-hmm yeah. Now, I do want to say <laughs> that that's good and well. Thank you so much, Bill Clinton, for having said that. But. However, when they were doing research for this study, um, someone did happen upon another situation that happened in Guatemala. So there is a widespread piece of misinformation out there. I know I heard this a lot growing up, um, that the men in the study were deliberately infected with syphilis. Mm. I can't find anything to back that up. It appears as though the men in this study had syphilis already. Um, So I don't think that that is true. However, the U.S. government did go to Guatemala and conduct studies um, in which they did give subjects venereal diseases at yeah, that point. It, so, it, and this is the part that really like grinds, I mean, all of it grinds my gears, but this high and mighty attitude that America likes to place on itself of, you know, going into, uh, you know, the Holocaust and, and saving the Jews and, you know, all of these kinds of things that America likes to kind of puff its chest out for and be heroes. Mm-hmm. Yet we do this shit. Like we do the shit that we are telling all these other countries mm-hmm. that they're bad for doing. You know, we talked about internment camps on the show before. We're talking mm-hmm. about this. Like we are not innocent. We are not this great country that is impervious to doing these harmful things. And to this day, no one, not a single person has been prosecuted for their role in the deaths mm-hmm. of what they think to be about 399 men is about what, if they're going to guess the amount of subjects that passed away. And the final subject to pass away finally did so in 2009, which is like, that just happened. <laughs> 
it's crazy. Yeah. Not not the happiest of episodes, um, but... <laughs> uh, not the happiest, but definitely something that I am very glad that I researched, particularly seeing the, the lines between what's going on now and what's going on then, especially with, you know, reading about the Public Health Service and the CDC and all the ways that these very top, you know, federal government people were supposed to be protecting us and and they weren't like i Mm -hmm. i didn't really know much of this story and it was very eye-opening and eerily similar to what's going on right now in a lot of ways and a lot of the different things that i was reading yeah it's crazy wow (laughs) (sighs) well everybody enjoyed this episode i actually i know that these can be really heavy but i enjoy when we get to kind of deep dive on on things like this so if that's something that you enjoy as well please let us know yeah Um, if you have anything that you want to say if you are you know from the area if you know something that we didn't mention because i again this is one of those subjects that you know we just have a few days or a week to get into where i could go down a million rabbit holes so i'm sure there's so much more theories and stories and you know so if there is anything that you want to add to this conversation i would be more than happy to continue it so please please do so i want to also just give my sources really quickly so so. i got a lot of this from a history.com article i also listened to a stuff you missed in history class episode um, from back in 2017 i don't think it's on apple podcasts anymore Mm -hmm. i had to listen to it on stitcher on my computer um but if that's something that you're interested in. They have a ton of great episodes as well, but yeah, I got good information on that. I got a really, I found a really, really great article from McGill.ca, which I think McGill is like a textbook company. Uh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yes. and it was very, very in depth. It was a really, really great article. So I'll make sure that um, I get that linked in the show notes as well. So if there's anything that you want to add to the story in the conversation, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can direct message us on Instagram as well at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go on the group page and chat with the other listeners and then hop over to the business page and leave us a review. When you're done there, go on over to Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already and leave us a review there. You will be featured on our Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday as a big, big thank you. Uh, Oh, and I forgot to mention, also, we are going to be starting our Patreon and releasing merch soon. So if there's any ideas that you have for merch, things that you want to see, things that you want to have, go ahead and email us or direct message us any of those thoughts. Also, there's anything that you want to hear from us on Patreon. We want to know what you want to hear. We want to give you what you want. So we want to hear from you again. Email us, direct message us, all that fun stuff. All right. Happy Black History Month. We got through the first week of it. That is all we have for you first today. First two weeks. First two weeks? Mm-hmm. Really? What was Oh, you're right. We already did one. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're right. Well, happy second week of Black History Month. My bad. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage, rage on. on. Bye. Bye.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.